Welcome to the Pineapple Couch with B-Rob. Today is Tuesday, January 19th. This is episode 76, and it's a little bonus episode for you folks today, because I'm going to be talking about the Stones and specifically detailing their run, the greatest run in rock and roll history. I've talked about this subject a little bit before, and I was just thinking about it today, because I think about this all the time, because I'm a weird person, but I thought I might as well go into it on a little rant style thing to end the pod. What I want to talk to you guys about is the greatest run in rock and roll history. The greatest run in rock and roll history. You might be wondering what band I'm talking about, but if you know me, you know what band I'm going to be talking about. I'm talking about the Rolling Stones, the greatest rock and roll band of all time. I've said this many times, and if you disagree with me, you're wrong. I'm sorry, you're wrong. But that's not the point of this. We're talking about the greatest run in rock and roll history. The golden age Of the Stones. There is a a run they have, and it goes from 1967 to 1973, where they were literally invincible. They were put, it was the best string or run of putting out unbelievable rock and roll music, and at the same time, some absolutely legendary world tours and some crazy shit that happens on the side with uh, stuff like Exile. So we'll get into that. Um, Where should we start? Well, I often say this, and I think people think I'm over-exaggerating, but we should start with the most important song in rock and roll history for me, because I'm a Stones guy. And that song would be Jumping Jack Flash. So why that song? I mean, it's obviously a great song, but why is that the starting point for this glorious run? Well, if you look back at the Stones in the early 60s, They were a cover blues band, basically, but they were doing incredibly well. And then they kind of evolve, and you start getting songs like Satisfaction, Paint It Black, Under My Thumb, Time Is On My Side. So they start to have a catalog of their own uh, music that they wrote, obviously. But when you think of those songs, they're great songs. It's not The Stones, the era that we're going to get into. But so to give you some context, that's where we are at with The Stones. They're doing covers, and then they're kind of trying in a way, not... I think they're being pushed to do this by the studio. They're trying to be somewhat like the Beatles. And that's not who the Stones are. The Stones are not the studio band that pumps out that type of music like the Beatles. And so I think you have for a long stretch in the 60s of really the record labels and all that stuff pushing them to be more like the Beatles because they want that Stones versus the Beatles thing. And what's funny about that is when they were pushing for that to be the case, it was hurting the Stones in that argument, in my opinion. And what really happened was the Stones, when they just said, I don't give a fuck, they took off. So let's get into that. The album that came out before we get Jumping Jack Flash is called Their Satanic Magical Mysteries Quest. I think I'm getting that right. No notes, folks. Um, But basically, it's like a psychedelic album that is trying to be somewhat like Sgt. Pepper's by the Beatles, but it's a real miss of an album. And that you know it's a real miss if I'm saying a Stones album is a miss, because I really don't think there's that many. There's really none that are misses. But this one is a miss. It does have She's a Rainbow on it, which is a fantastic song, but it's just not what the Stones are. The Stones are not a psychedelic acid trippy late that's not who they are they are not the peace love hippie movement they're kind of the common man who's kind of laughing at all the shit that's going on on both sides that's what the stones are but so what happens is they have this psychedelic album that obviously is not going that well and um completely unrelated keith and mick are at keith's estate in 
some part of England, I assume it's London, um, big old estate, and they basically, they take acid. And they, um, I'm sure they were doing other drugs, but from what the story is, they were taking acid and they go on some long walk. And then in Keith's big ass estate, I guess he has like acres, but cut the story short, they come back and what happens is a local newspaper tipped off the police in London that basically there was a drug like party going on at Keith's, like I don't know if it was to the level of they were saying it was trafficking, but they really tipped off the police on this. And you got to remember that the police hated the Stones. The establishment of England hated the Stones. There was new newspaper headlines that were put out. Would would you let a, your daughter or sister date a Rolling Stone? They were compared to Neanderthals. The Beatles were the shining golden boy and the Stones were thrown to the side. And then really rock and roll history changes with these events. So the Stones are arrested. Keith and Mick are arrested that day at Keith's apartment. And they go to uh, the court, and um, Mick complies, basically, and, like, is sorry, and he's, like, apologizing and all that shit while the judge is lecturing down to them. Mick, I believe, gets a six-month sentence. And then Keith, while all this is going on, the judge is lecturing at him. He said, excuse me, your honor, don't, don't bother me. I, I don't care about your petty rules, was essentially what he said, which then Keith was sentenced to a year in the slammer. This was obviously a big deal. Um, and so they're in jail, I think, for like honestly like a week or two. And then they get released because of um, some public outcry, some Stones fans, some pressure there. Um, so the, the Stones, they're out. And this is the famous line from Keith, is the cops turned me into a criminal. And this is where that the Stones really put on the black hat. It was always the Beatles were the guys in white, the Stones were in black. And the Stones, for the most part, were just kind of going along with the act for a while. And then this shit happens, and the Stones are like, okay, let's really embrace this. Let's put on the black hat, because it's not an act, what they're going to do. And so... The Stones, you don't hear from them. You know they were in prison, and then there's a, a good five to six month stretch where it's what's going to happen with the Rolling Stones. They were just in prison. Is this going to be a regular occurrence? Or is this the end? Because keep in mind, the last album they put out was their Satanic, their satanic Magistries, which, as I mentioned, is not a gold mine. And then what happens is the most important moment in rock and roll history for me is they release Jumpin' Jack Flash. And if you... You can look it up, the video of Jumping Jack Flash, but it's, they got the face paint. It is the total, we are the bad guys, we are embracing it. And you finally really get that full Keith guitar sound on Jumping Jack Flash. Just the, the Keith sound, I don't even know how to describe it because it's just, it's like when you think about songs like Monkey Man, it's on that. And songs like Midnight Rambler, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, it really starts with Jumping Jack Flash right here. And it's like, holy fucking shit, the Stones are back. And this is different. This is gnarly. And so then what happens is the Stones release one more single. Or actually, excuse me. Uh, that, that's, that actually happens after the next album. So they release Jumping Jack Flash, and then they're going to release their um, next album, Beggar's Banquet, in 1968. And the lead song on Beggar's Banquet, Sympathy for the Devil. And folks, keep in mind. Sympathy for the Devil, right, like, when we listen to it now, we don't think really about, oh, this is controversial, because it's not, it's not, 
back then, sympathy for the devil was incredibly controversial, especially attached to the guys in the band like the Stones, where there was already a public perception of them being criminals, druggies, whatever. And so you get Beggar's Banquet, which is really an unbelievable album. You have, it's a lot of um, influence from American, like, folk on this album. You got uh, great songs like Jigsaw Puzzle, Parachute Woman, Stray Cat Blues, Salt of the Earth. And then um, I should mention this, No Expectations is an unbelievable song. And it was actually the last real contribution from Brian Jones as a Rolling Stone. Brian Jones was the... It was the in the original group of the Stones. Him and Keith were the two guitarists. Brian Jones kind of started out as like the the main guy. He wanted the attention. He wanted the eyes on him. And basically, over time, although he was incredibly talented, he had some very unique skill sets. Like you think about the sitar that's done on Paint It Black. That's him. You think about the slide on No Expectations. That's him. But over the years, Brian really grows resentful of Mick and Keith and really turns heavily into drug use, which he's basically a vegetable slash zombie at the Stones recording. And so they get no, they do no expectations, and then they kind of part ways. The band, they, they have to let Brian go, and um, they didn't want to do it. They loved Brian, but they knew they had to. And Brian kind of took the route of this was this is what he wanted, and his goal in life was to not be a Rolling Stone. Said some kind of shady shit, but... Basically, two to three weeks later, maybe a month later, Brian Jones is found dead at the bottom of a swim, his swimming pool. And it is obviously drug-related. Um, I don't know exactly what drugs or what happened, but he is found dead at the bottom of his swimming pool. And that really shocks the Stones because the Stones had just started um, basically the promotional tour for their 1969 tour, which was going to be off their album, Let It Bleed. So before we get into what happens next, I'm going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. So I thought this whole segment was going to be like 15 minutes long, but then I just realized I covered only a year and a half in about 10 minutes there. So buckle up, folks. Uh, We got a lot more to talk about. So where we left off, we had Brian Jones passed away at the bottom of a swimming pool. Right at the same time, the Stones are about to go on tour for their 1969 album, Let It Bleed. And what happens, we'll get into Let It Bleed in a second. The Stones, they're looking for guitarists. They're looking for... um, someone to replace Brian Jones. They're looking to tour again. And so they don't really have a guitarist in the recording of Let It Bleed besides Keith Richards. He is doing the majority of all of that. You might have a little Mick Taylor in there, but not that much. And so Mick Taylor is the one who has chosen to join the Rolling Stones. Uh, fun fact, actually, you know who he beat out, who was uh, who tried out for the Stones in this era it was Eric Clapton. Imagine if the Stones got Clapton. I don't know. It, I, I'm glad they got Mick Taylor. We'll get into that, um, even though I like Clapton a lot. So what happens is the Stones were going to kick off their 1969 tour with a big concert in the park at Hyde Park in England. And um, at the time, 
This is basically the biggest concert that's ever happened. It's like 500,000 people in Hyde Park. And it was planned before they found out Brian Jones passed away. And so basically this turns into not only a giant concert to kick off the 1969 tour. It's Mick Taylor's first appearance. And it's basically the a funeral of some sort for Brian Jones. And a cool quote, uh, I believe... Um, Keith Richards or Charlie Watts said was that Mick Taylor and that basically essentially got baptized by fire because they just threw him out there and that's that because Mick Taylor never looked back Mick Taylor is the most underrated guitarist in the history of rock and roll he's someone that everyone should know about because of how crucial he was to this era of the Stones but not unfortunately not that many do um Mick Taylor and Keith, the way they can um, perform together and go back and forth is really what created this golden era for the Stones. So let's talk about Let It Bleed really quickly because this is 1969. Let It Bleed um, opens with Gimme Shelter. You got songs like Monkey Man. You can't. It ends with You Can't Always Get What You Want. You got Love in Vain. You've got Live With Me. You've got Midnight Rambler. You got... Uh, what else we got? Um, oh, the self-titled Let It Bleed. Just a great, great album. You Got the Silver. Keith Richards sings that one. And um, I really like Let It Bleed for a lot of reasons. Obviously, it's an amazing album. But one reason I really like it is basically around the time Let It Bleed comes out, John Lennon goes on record and gives basically all these like disparaging quotes about the Stones. Says that Mick dances around the stage like a bleep. Um, he said that they are just copying the Beatles and all this stuff, and they're nowhere near the level of the Beatles and blah, 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 blah. And so what I love is the Beatles, they release Let It Be, and the Stones just go, fuck it, let's release Let It Bleed. And that <clears throat> that is why I like the Stones more than the Beatles. It can be summarized just to that, Let It Bleed, Let It Bleed. The Stones are the hard rockers, and that is what it's about. And what's funny is this quote that John Lennon, he speaks out on, this is Basically, I mean, I already like the Stones more than the Beatles at this point, but this Let It Bleed is where I think it just, they, Let It Bleed just blows the Beatles out of the water in terms of rock and roll. It's never close after that point. It's an unbelievable album, and so Let It Bleed takes us into the 1969 tour. The U.S. tour specifically is what we're going to talk about, and um, it's an unbelievable tour. There's a lot of footage actually on YouTube of the 69 tour. Um, Mick's wearing the famous uh, America top hat, essentially. I mean, <clears throat> throughout this run, there's actually an album called Get Your Yaya's Out that is a live album to uh, this tour. So I would check that out. It's great. You, one of the best versions of Sympathy for the Devil you've ever heard. You got um, Under My Thumbs played. You got Stray Cat Blues is on there um, and many more. You, you got them covering I'm Free. It's great. It's a great um, tour, obviously. And then at the same time, you think about 1969. What's going on in 1969? Well, Woodstock. Woodstock happens. And so basically after Woodstock happens, a bunch of promoters and this stuff basically talk the Rolling Stones into throwing Woodstock West, a free concert in the hills of San Francisco, Altamont Speedway specifically, to be the Woodstock West. And so the Stones... This is all kind of just thrown at them in the middle of the tour. And so they go along with it. They're down. And they did not know what they were getting into. The, the events of Altamont, if you don't know about them, are 
it's crazy. It's a crazy fucking experience. So let's just get into it. Altamont, they didn't, the Stones didn't want to work with the cops, so they had the Hells Angels do security. Um, one of the first things that happens when the Stones land in a helicopter is they notice, holy shit, all these people are so fucked up. And it's just, it's a shit show when you're looking around. Some woman punches Mick Jagger in the face literally 10 seconds after he gets off the helicopter. And so the Stones get out of the way and they're waiting to go on. And the crowd as the night goes on just is getting incredibly restless, rowdy. It is one of the, you would never want to be in this place, folks. And as much as I love the Rolling Stones, it would do anything to see them live. I wouldn't want to be within 100 miles of this. And so um, the Hells Angels, as Keith points out, he th- he notices that they're like tripping on acid and peyote and they're doing a bunch of uppers. And so they're getting violent and aggressive with the crowd and at the same time though the crowd is getting increasingly rowdy increasingly fucked up and all that sorts of stuff and it all really kind of culminates during the stone set the videos of the stone set you can actually find it's wild to look at because the stones are really on the small stage in an island surrounded by people really trapped really trapped it in a they did not feel safe at all up there and they all said this and so they start going throughout their set um (laughs) Actually, to where credit's due, they perform an unbelievable performance of Sympathy for the Devil at Altamont. And then, unfortunately, what happens is a gentleman, and if you look at the video, he's in a, like a bright green suit. He pulls a gun on Mick Jagger from the crowd, and he's going to shoot. And, base, and a hell's angel stabs him and kills him. I do not believe the Hells ain't he. Yeah, there, the Hells Angels didn't shoot him. There's like a bunch of like stabbed, and he died. And that's when the Stones get the fuck out of there. They are evacuated out. A helicopter, all this shit. It's a giant mess. It's called one of the darkest days in rock and roll history. All the newspapers that hated the Stones. This was a field day for them. I mean, let it bleed. Can you think about how many times newspaper used that as like a. A creative way to talk about this. So, I mean, they did. They really did. Um, and so the Stones end on just what was a great tour on a big down note there. And the Stones are tired. But the one thing to keep in mind, while the Stones are touring, folks, they're always recording. They're always writing music. So on this 1969 tour, they actually go to um, Muscle Shoals. I, Muscle Shores, Muscle Shoals. It's some. It's a recording studio in Alabama, and they actually cut there. They cut um, "You Gotta Move" and "Brown Sugar," I believe, on that tour. And so, folks, we're getting into now. The find the lat. We have three more albums to go in this golden era, and the next one, "Sticky Fingers," that comes out in 1971, which top to bottom is. <laughs> It's so hard to compare all these albums, folks, because they're just, it's stacked. Sticky Fingers, you think about it, it's got Brown Sugar, it's got Sway, it's got Wild Horses, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, You Gotta Move, Dead Flowers, Sister Morphine, Moonlight Mile, Bitch. Like, it's an unbelievably stacked album. And so they released that in 1971 and do not tour off it. They don't tour because I think they're just giving themselves a break after the shit show that was 1969. And so they, um, 
there were some performances in 71 of the Stones, I believe, at the Marquee Club, where you can see them playing some of the uh, tracks from Sticky Fingers, like I Got the Blues, but they're also doing songs like Midnight Rambler, um, but no tour. And then let's, so this takes us really to the story of Exile on Main Street, folks. Um, at this time, basically, the Stones, I, I don't know the exact number, it's something, they're getting taxed like 80%. So they were hundreds and thousands of pounds in debt to the British government. And there was really nothing for them to do. So as tax, tax exiles, the Stones picked up and went to France. They went to southern France, Nellicote. And um, Keith ends up getting this big-ass mansion. And they record... Exile on Main Street in the basement of this mansion. And Exile, folks, Exile on Main Street is my favorite album of all time. I think it's the best album of all time. And I think why is because it epitomizes everything that I love about rock and roll. Kind of just like the the carelessness put together of just the wobble of how everything... It's not perfect like the Beatles. You think about the Beatles. I know I'm kind of shitting on them this episode, but you know what? Fuck it. The Beatles, you think, think about a song like I Want to Hold Your Hand. It's so concise and like four bar, four verses here, chorus, blah, 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 blah. It's just so like, it's almost like a math equation. And that's not what the Stones are. The Stones are not that. And you saw that in earlier albums on songs like uh, Midnight Rambler and um, on Can't You Hear Me Knocking. And then on Exile on Main Street, there's just an abundance of these jam tracks that just show off the the stones just this is gonna sound cheesy the roll rock and roll the stones are, are they have that roll part of it and like when you look at all the other bands in this era the stones i think have that best combination of rock and roll and why do i think that because that probably sounded really cheesy well there's something interesting about the way the stones play and um you could find this out in uh, there's a documentary about them called crossfire hurricane highly re highly recommend but it's described as a wobble. And so the wobble is happens this way. So most bands follow the drummer, Charlie Watts. But the Stones follow Keith. So Keith plays and Charlie's about a half step behind. And Bill Wyman, the bass player, tends to play a half step forward. Which creates this wobble. It's really hard to describe. And one thing that Charlie Watts says is, it's dangerous because at one, it's so awesome in one respect, but it could all fall apart like that. And so that's why you'll get some stories about the Stones where it's like they have been trying to get this song working for 10 hours and nothing will happen. And then one, one, boom, Keith will find the right groove and there it is. Like Tumbling Dice is a song like that. It took him forever to get, um, that exact version out of it they had other versions of it there's a song called good time woman um where if on exile main street the deluxe version it wasn't on the actual album but it's basically tumbling dice so you can hear them toying with that and the story of exile is just absolutely insane so they're living in this big mansion mick's not living there pretty much everyone else is um keith and mick not on the best of terms during these times um and this is peak keith heroin phase peak keith on heroin so i mean there's stories about them in exile of them doing drug deals and um having like 
drug bosses come to the, uh, the, the mansion or whatever and gunfights. Just absolutely wild, batshit, crazy things are going on there. And I think that's why Mick Jagger kind of stayed a bit away unless they were recording. And the thing, though, during this time with the Stones... And what I'm just all this like these obstacles that I think the Stones face in this recording process at Exile, it's what made it so great. So like, an example of this is like so Keith he's so deep on heroin in this phase, right? So sometimes it's like the Stones wouldn't practice until the sun was down, and then they'd practice till the sun came up. They would literally play from like twelve at night to seven in the morning. There was no schedule at all, which drove Mick Jagger absolutely batshit crazy they're recording in the basement of this big ass mansion that is so dense and human that after every single take sometimes they'd have to stop takes because the guitars are coming out of tune because of the humidity in the room and all of that the chaos of that place and it puts together in my opinion the greatest album in rock and roll history a double album i'm a sucker for double albums on and let's just look at tumbling or uh exile on main street when you look at the song it's start off with the rocks off one of the all-time great opening songs, a great lyric, The Sunshine Bores the Daylights Out of Me. You got songs like Rip This Joint, Casino Boogie, Tumbling Dice, Sweet Virginia, Happy, Shine a Light, Let It Loose, Stop Breaking Down, Soul Survivor, Loving Cup. You can just go on and on. It's just a beautiful, beautiful rock and roll album put together obviously so much american influence in the stone stuff and it's really put on display there and then so the stones take that album and they go on tour the 1972 u.s tour which i regard as the greatest tour in the history of rock and roll um they go there's actually a movie called ladies and gentlemen the rolling stones that is a concert film of it's combined of their performances at madison square garden and in, uh, I believe it was Fort Worth or Dallas, Texas, where the other one was. But just an all-time tour. <clears throat> you got one thing the Stones do so well, folks, is uh, I always say this. You never underestimate a good horn section. And the Stones, they did not. Bobby Keys, Keith Richards' best friend, um, unbelievable saxophone player. And I thought a good quote, uh, and rest in peace to Bobby Keys, absolute legend. A good quote, though, to remember Bobby Keys and understand how important and great he was. Like, folks, really quick, think about, like, the, the horns in Bitch. Think about some of the horns that the Stones have going on in these songs. Like, Sweet Virginia, you have so much. I mean, Let It Loose. It's a big part of the Stones. You don't think about it, but it is. That's why we never underestimate a good horn section, folks. We never, ever underestimate a good horn section. And so a good way to remember Bobby Keys, like I was saying, is Bill Wyman described him like this. He's like, Bobby Keys was not the greatest saxophone player ever. He was the greatest rock and roll saxophone player ever. And Bobby Keys cannot cannot be understated how great he was um, because he was with the Stones for a long, long time. Keith Richards' best friend. We also should mention Nicky Hopkins on the keyboard or on the piano, a big part of this. Um, and they just put together an unbelievable U.S. tour, 1972, a total, I mean, it's described as the most hedonistic tour of all time, just sex, drugs, rock and roll, basically, that cheesy saying, but that, it was a fucking wild, wild tour that it was electric. It was when that band on stage with those audiences, and specifically the U.S., it was just special that wobble going and so that tour if you have not seen footage of them live in 1972 
you need to pause the podcast right now and go check that out. Or maybe finish it and then check it out. I don't know. It's up to you. Um, so the 1972 tour, unbelievable tour. And we're going to wrap it up today with um, the last album in this golden era. It's 1973, Goat's Head Soup. It's actually recorded in Jamaica because there's so many countries the Stones were banned from. Um, and Goat's Head Soup, I would say, is the weakest link of this golden era run. It's still an unbelievable album. Songs like Dancing with Mr. D, Do 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 Do, Heartbreaker, Angie, um, Winter. A great album. They actually just released a deluxe version of it recently, and it actually has um, two unreleased songs by the Stones that are awesome, specifically Crisscross. But they also have a song called Scarlet from this recording time that they never released, but it's with Jimmy Page. So check that out. That's pretty cool. Um, and then, so 1973... The Stones are—they're slowing down. They definitely are. Um, It—I don't want to say they're getting bored, but it was just after a run like that, it seemed like a little bit of the spark might have been gone. They do tour, however, Australia in 1973, and from all accounts, in a great tour. Not as electric and gritty as that 1970 tour, I guess, is a way I would describe it, but nonetheless, very good. And. That concludes really the golden era of the Stones. We, what happens is um, they have an album in 1975. It's only rock and roll. Um, and Mick Taylor then leaves the band. Um, he says, he says often people ask me, why the hell would you leave the Rolling Stones? And he said, I mean, one, he was getting addicted to heroin, and he, tra- he just needed to escape it. He couldn't handle being around Keith anymore. And the Keith is an enigma because no one really can, or at least we thought. And I guess this is a story for another time. But Ron Wood, who eventually comes in to join the Stones, he was perfect for Keith. Those two. A match made in heaven. And the last thing to kind of end this this piece or this pot about is the yin and the yang of Mick and Keith, the Glimmer Twins is what they were called. Um, They are so different. Keith is so lazy in his ways of wanting to record. Mick is much more structured. They get on each other's nerves. But they need each other. And that duo, that combination, it's unmatched. It's really unmatched. And just from the little things of this era of, wow, Keith and Mick, you think about... um, harmonies and stuff and it's like oh everyone has their own mic Keith wouldn't have his own mic he'd just go run up to Mick's mic and sing it and they'd blend their vocals that way it, it was incredible it was an incredible run this was kind of just like a fanboying out about how much I love the Stones but I hope you enjoyed this I hope you maybe learned something you didn't know about the Stones because um, they're, they're awesome folks and there's so many stories to tell so maybe I'll tell some more another time but thank you so much for listening this has been the Pineapple Couch with B-Rob God bless the Rolling Stones are the greatest rock band in the history of the world. We'll see ya.